Welcome to our Triune Pod, where we prepare you to praise. I'm the Reverend Nick Comiskey. And I'm the Reverend Ben DeHart. Join us for a conversation about low-key theology, lived experience, and outlandish pop culture as we break down the collect of the day for the coming week. We hope it's an inspiring, maybe a bit irreverent, but mostly helpful way to get you ready for some God time. Welcome back to our Triune Pod. Nick and Ben here. Nick, I feel like I haven't talked to you in a little while. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I mean, we talk every week. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's just been a, a longer week, I guess, okay. for oh, me. I don't know about you, sweet, but uh, that's sweet. Yeah. I miss your face. I miss your musk. <laughs> oh, yikes. All right. Transition, transition. <laughs> Anchorman. <Okay>. Anchorman quote. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I, have, uh, I have never seen Anchorman. Um, what? I know. I know. It's too late now. It's a. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's in the ether. Um, but speaking of that, actually, that's not a bad transition. So I thought for Unrelated this week, I'd, I'd, I'd throw a question to you, man. Um, what is one cultural artifact? So a, a record, a band, a book, a movie, something that is iconic that you do cannot get into. Something that everybody loves that you don't necessarily hate, but you don't understand its mass appeal. What do you got? I'm going to say Bob Dylan. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I respect Bob Dylan. Don't get me wrong. If you were to give me his song lyrics as a poem, I'd be like, wow. But man, other than like Rolling Stone, maybe <laughs> Masters of War, yeah. I cannot listen to it. Wow. I, I really wanted to say something like Teletubbies or I don't know, like <laughs> something Welcome that's like, oh, 1994. everybody hates it. I mean, Bob Dylan, 1955. Yeah, but he's uh, still like revered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason I bring that up is during the pandemic, when we all had nothing to do, that Bob Dylan album came out. And it's the first time he had like a number one album, number one song. And I tried to listen to it. It's that song that's like 14 minutes long or whatever. And I made it through about two and a half minutes. Couldn't I feel do like it. you have a thing though. Like you like you love the new the recent Bruce Springsteen stuff. I could see oh, you yeah. liking like the late Rolling Stones output. Like you do like those like the legacy acts like totally. stuff, which is kind of cool. That's a cool lane to occupy. Yeah. So for all my friends who love the Beach Boys, love the Rolling Stones, love Zeppelin and all that, you can hate on me for this. I just I can't get into Bob Dylan. No, that's good, man. That's fair. That's a good one. What about you? So my narrow. My narrow thing is um, is Dune, and the wider thing is just science fiction in general. I know that <laughs> science fiction isn't iconic; it's a genre. But yeah, I've been trying to read Dune and prep for the movie, and I just can't get into it. Like, I just don't see why people like it. I think the yeah. world building aspect of it is interesting, but I just find the allegories so straightforward and the characters so flat. And so I'm literally reading this. I'm like, why do people like this? Like, I just mm. don't understand why people like it. And then science fiction in general, I would say, is just something that I don't, once you get past the like novelty of the world building, I just find all of the characters to be like representations of like archetypes and there's no movement within the characters. So it's just like chess pieces. It doesn't mm. matter what I think about the literature. I just like, that is something I just cannot get into. So people will recommend these science fiction. I love War of the Rings. I even like fantasy stuff. 
but something about science fiction as a genre and then an iconic text like dune i'm just like i don't get why people are so into this is it like space science fiction in general uh in i mean isn't all isn't all science fiction like space uh, i mean like, not necessarily but i mean yeah yeah i mean like i think you're th- like you're like star trek star wars oh yeah i, I hate, I hate you know, like all that's all stuff. Yeah. the stuff that you're talking about yeah there's that I, there's a really great book um that they made an okay movie about called annihilation that's science oh, yeah. fiction-y. Um, that's a really cool book. But that's much more like experimental and not, it doesn't really, con- it's Vandermeer, Jeff Vandermeer. Um, mm-hmm. Why are we talking about this? It doesn't matter. But yeah, science fiction is my answer, man. So check yeah. out, the, uh, the answer to that might be the book Stranger in a Strange Land. See, I mean, who would buy, you, you but I love doing, it. You think you're doing it, man. This is, <laughs> this is my point. You know, is it Isaac, whatever that guy? No, no, it's it's somebody. I think this is the only one he's written. Forgive me, science okay. fiction nerds, but I I read that in a book club back in Pittsburgh with some of our friends, and didn't expect to like it, and was kind of blown away. Uh, but I will say this, based on what you're saying, I have never read a book before the movie came out, like for something big, like when the Lord of the Rings were coming out, and everyone saw the first one, and they were like, "Wow, this is awesome! I've got to read the other no. two before watching the movies." I knew that I was not going to do that. I wanted to watch the movies. And then years later, I'd get to the books. Same thing with Harry Potter. I have never read those books because I was just kind of like, the movies are good. I just, I kind of don't want to, I mean, now I've come around and read The Lord of the Rings. And what's nice about Lord of the Rings is the movie and the books, movies and the books, I think are so very different. Very different. The books are so much darker, so much more interesting. Uh, No disrespect. Love the movies at the time. But uh, what about yeah, like so? I would never to try to read Dune before you've watching. Read, this. Like you didn't read Moneyball before the movie, or I'm trying no. to think of like iconic. Mo- I'm using that word a lot. Um, trying to think of the girl with the dragon tattoo. No, because whenever I read a book before the movie, the movie I hate the movie. I'm just like, oh, there's so much they missed. Uh, it wasn't that great. Uh, See, like, this is I think. A- I'm going to like Dune the movie. I just know. I know it's been getting some like so-so reviews. I'm going to love Dune the movie way more than I like the book. Well, I didn't really like the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that director is incredible. But I'll say this. This is for our listeners who grew up in the evangelical world. I was one of those people who read all the Left Behind books up to like, you know, what was out at the time. It was like five or six books. And I remember watching the movie and being so disappointed wow <laughs> because i at that time i loved the first book and the movie left so much out so since then i kind of learned you gotta watch the movie first yeah it's or, weird man i wonder there's probably some causal relationship here i feel like my life church life professional life spiritual life is so much more like traditional kind of evangelical than yours i but i had zero exposure to any of those cultural artifacts like i never i've never read a page or seen a scene from any of those movies i've never listened to Carmen or like any of that crap sorry yeah. any of those kinds of Christian <laughs> you know I, I think my parents were just like we want him to be a believer so we're going to shield him from a lot of that stuff and that's <laughs> pretty funny because for me I mean it wasn't that my mom wasn't a believer but I heard about Left Behind because it was like the New York Times bestseller list so it was like wow right, there are Christians right. out there I've got to check this out oh praise God praise God so. all right man um, all right let's, let's go well seamless transition to this collect. Oh God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we running to obtain your promises may become partakers of your heavenly treasure through Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Um, and Nick, I don't know if you remember this, but we had five practice recordings before we released our first pod. So we've talked about this one before. Is and it would be right? fun to uh, compare and contrast. So what do you got to say? What? It's been about a year, year later. I have zero memory of that. So I hope uh, I, 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 my guess. Is, uh, <laughs> what, if, what if we're worse? <laughs> that's not unlikely. Um, okay. So I think there's two, two buckets that we could talk about today as it relates to this colleague. And the first one is about power and how we display power. So the ascription or the kind of declaration of truth about God that we open with is that God declares his almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and p- pity. Uh, ben, how do you display power? You're a powerful guy. I mean, that's why when, when I get in the gym, I, I get jacked <laughs> doing my bench presses. That's power to me. No, that's good, man. Um, I appreciate that about you. Now, I think I've been thinking about this partly because of my new job here is like the way that bosses exercise power over their employees and this the, the world of like i think how do bosses exercise power or how do like managers exercise power of their super you know the people that they supervise typically it's punitive it's like they exercise their power by firing them <laughs> or they exercise their power by putting them on probation or they exercise their power by doing something that kind of relegates them to a new new position. Um, and I think what is so remarkable and so humanizing about this prayer is that we say that God declares his almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. So imagine a scenario where you're a boss and your employee does something wrong, does something, they made a, a mistake that ends up copy, cost, costing the company lots of money, or it's a personnel mistake and it ends up hurting someone. And that's serious. It needs to be dealt with. But I think the standard answer is like, look, you're their boss. You need to demonstrate power by like mm-hmm. putting them on probation or by punishing them. And I no. think what this prayer is saying is like, well, God displays his almighty power chiefly by showing mercy and pity. And that is so counterintuitive. And that is so, that runs in such operate, different, differing logic in the way of the world. Um, are you familiar um, with this distinction? it's a rhetorical, I mean, it's a thing, but Martin Luther says there is right-handed power, power of the world, and there is left-handed power, the power of God's kingdom. And what's that, you know, that, what that is trading on is this notion that some people are, they, and the, the way most people become successful and the way that most people become powerful is because of their ambition. And what the gospel says is there is this very different way of exercising power. It's power that's not based on force or strength, whether it's military force or personal ambition, but there's, um, you know, left-handed power and it's the power of love, of forgiveness, of self-giving, of grace. And the reality is that right-handed power is always vulnerable to greater forms of right-handed power, right? If you're the strongest guy in the gym, you're in constant fear that there's going to be a stronger guy. Or if you're the head of your organization, there's constant fear that they're going to appoint a new CEO or chief, whatever. But in the gospel, the way the gospel redefines power, you kind of are out of that zero sum competitive game and you demonstrate your power by showing mercy, by offering forgiveness and grace. And yeah, it's such a very different way of thinking about influence and power and authority. It's, it's, yeah, I think it's beautiful. I just saw the card counter. Uh, it's a oh, I saw Paul it. Do you see yeah, it? Great. Oh, yeah, yeah great. So Oscar Isaac in uh, it's seen toward the end of the movie. This doesn't give anything away. He's talking to this guy, this young kid he's looking after. 
And he talks about I, Oscar Isaac's character was in the military. He was involved in like this with Guantanamo Bay, um, you know, torturing people and just messed up because of it. And he says at one point, people tilt. And he gave this illustration that there are people who are torturers who get so caught up in their own power. And sometimes they get so frustrated because the people who are under their power are not obeying that they tilt, for lack of a better word. They take it too far. Uh, their goal, right, which is not, I'm definitely not in favor of torture, um, is to extract information. But here they're getting so frustrated that they're not getting that information that they go too far. And a lot of times I think that that right-handed power is like that. It's all about flexing your muscle, all about showing your authority. And a lot of times it really is just like, like you said, you feel vulnerable to someone, you know, supplanting you or something like that, or usurping your authority. And here we have What's yeah, so interesting. It's so counterintuitive. You declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity, which is the opposite of everything that no, it's so true, man. Talked about, yeah. Like, I've been um reading this volume of systematic theology by Robert Jensen, which I understand about a third of, but from what I can't understand, one of his like insistent points is that when you when you talk about theology. And you talk about what God is like, you have to start and anchor everything you believe to the historical person of Jesus Christ. Cause like, that's the center. And so God is what Jesus does. Right. And I think that's relevant for this conversation because when you just think, you know, it's like, it's the kind of standard, uh, AW pink, you know, attributes of God, God is like omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's, he's, um, you know, I don't know, omnipotent, uh, all powerful. And that conjures up images of like earthquakes and tidal waves mm-hmm. and wrath and punishment and are, are like the grand Canyon, you know, or what even can be positive things, but it's all, all about grander. But then when you look at Jesus and Jesus's preeminent moment of power was his self emptying on the cross. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then it raises the question, well, what must God be like if his preeminent display of power is so, forgiving his enemies as they crucify him and i think what it reveals is this relatively abstract theological point that has like real uh emotional force is that god is not in competition with anybody like god is perfect in love and power and purity god is complete in himself and that enables god to be completely for the other god doesn't need other people to you know, to satisfy him or to, or to, he doesn't need to lord over people. He, he got his complete in himself. I'm not articulating this very well, but I think there's something really dense, but also very powerful about the idea that God is uniquely able as God to be completely for others and not have any kind of self-interest in the game. Um, and that is unlike literally any other human relationship. So we believe that by faith, but I think the gospel displays that kind of God for us. When I was a chaplain, at the University of Pitt and Carnegie Mellon, I remember going to this interfaith event and this one guy, he was kind of a, a leader of the Muslim Islamic ministry. He came up to me, said hello, talked about how he used to be a Christian and said what drew him to Islam, what made him convert was that he read the Quran and in the Quran, God, Allah is shown as this like all powerful one this one whom we should reverence, who we should fall down our fa- in our faces in front of, 
the language of the Quran, very exalted. Uh, and I didn't know what to say at the time. I mean, I, I was just was like, hey, man, okay, great. Uh, but th- <laughs> thinking, of, <laughs> thinking of this uh, collect, it's, I mean, of course, in all our attributes of God, God is omnipotent, all-powerful. God is, you know, all-knowing. God is, you know, we have room in the Christian tradition for the highest Anglo-Catholic, you know, bowing, incense, and all that. But what makes Christianity unique and what's, you know, somewhat offensive about it, as we see here, is that there's kind of a weakness to it, that left-handedness to it, and that the glory of God in its fullness is the God-man on the cross, laying down his life for people like you and me, which is very interesting to me. Like the, the glory of God is very particular. It's very, it's like in those broken places. And I can see why, yeah, like maybe that's unattractive to some people, but I mean, (laughs) I feel like when you have your breakdowns or when you need, you know, a friend who's closer to you than the vein is in your neck, uh, that's when, you know, this left-handed power, this, you know, power that is shown in mercy and pity is just too good to be true. And yet it is. So <laughs> if I can go back in time, I tell them, well, we have both and we've, we've got the grandeur and we've got, we've got uh, the mercy. Good. Yeah. Okay. So we say this wonderful thing about God, that God displays his almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. And then we make a, a request. We ask God for the fullness of his grace that we running to obtain your promises may become partakers of your heavenly treasure through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And my original thought when I read this prayer for the purposes of this podcast, and I've prayed this prayer, you know, untold number of times is um, that grace here was working something like Gatorade. Like we were on this race to heavenly virtue and we need to run well in order to complete the race and win the prize. And so grace here becomes this enabling power that helps us run. And without getting too bogged down in the details, um, doing some little bit of study on this collect and the way it's been rendered over the centuries is that at one point that was very clearly the intention of the writer is that grace is likened to this fuel that enables us to live a life of virtue and receive the reward of God's heavenly promises. And what the the book that I was reading made a pretty persuasive case that actually the way that this prayer is rendered here, the one that we're praying is more in alignment with the original version, which is much more, the emphasis is much more that God has already graced us or given us our heavenly treasure by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are running not to win a prize, but we are running towards a prize that has already been won and secured for us. And the analogy that comes to my mind I hope I don't do too many endurance sports analogies, but it's um, the Tour de France. And if you've ever watched the Tour de France, it's the most grueling sporting event in the world, in my opinion. But the winner, it's counterintuitive, but the winner is decided on the, the penultimate stage or the second to last stage. And so the final stage, which is this like slow pedal into Paris, is celebratory. And the person who won the race is already enjoying the victory. He's literally drinks champagne. Um, and there's something analogous to our lives as Christians is that we are not running the race in order for God to say, okay, you ran fast enough. Now you can come into paradise. It's more like, no, we are running and we want to run as fast as we can towards the Lord because he's already opened the door, you know, like Mm. the door's already been opened. And so like, we're eager to get there because it's so wonderful, but it's a very different set of motivations than 
if it's, oh, I need to run fast because if I don't, the door is going to be closed. It's more like, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a great um, illustration. Maybe one of the best I've, I've ever heard. I'm going to feel that. So that, that's free, folks. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the only thing I was going to say with that is, yeah, I interpret this as, um, again, just to say it again, so people have it in their heads, grant us the fullness of your grace that we running to obtain your promises may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. I kind of view it as the way I'm reading it is you know, grace isn't just something given at the beginning of the Christian life and at the end of your Christian life. Grace is there beginning, the long, middle, and at the end. Um, and so we are enveloped in this mercy, in this pity, in this grace. This God who, again, is all-powerful, but shows it chiefly in that he will go to the cross for you and me. Mm. Amen. All right, people, that's the gospel. Now let's pray. Oh God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we running to obtain your promises may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. about that episode of our triune pod now that you've been prepped for praise won't you do us a solid and subscribe and review we promise to keep the outlandish illustrations coming so be sure to join us for another episode of your new favorite podcast